This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, July 20th, 2022, on your public radio station, KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead today, research at the University of Arkansas into what wild animals see and how that influences behavior. And a conversation with Dr. Rebecca Webster about her talk this Saturday at the Museum of Native American History about a governing principle that had an impact on the creation of the U.S. Constitution. First today, temperatures across the KUAF listening area are high. In both Fort Smith and Fayetteville, we broke record high temperatures yesterday. And there's a chance we may have a record high low temperatures as well this summer. Yesterday, I was joined in Studio 120 by Darby Bybee, Chief Meteorologist at 4029 News, and I asked if this was just recency bias or is this the hottest summer we've had in a while? It's recency bias. In one way it is, and in another way it totally isn't. For example, we're probably going to set some record highs over the next several days. We're probably going to set a record warm low. We're not going to cool off very much tonight. Uh, For our Tuesday night into our Wednesday morning, we're not going to cool off very much. And so that's a record that could be set. And then record highs for our Tuesday, for our Wednesday, and then eventually later on the week when the heat starts to return as we go into the weekend. And I say return, it never really goes away. It drops like a couple degrees away from maybe the records, but it's still exceedingly hot. The reality is we haven't had a whole lot of nasty heat or nasty heat waves in the last about nine years. In 2018, we had, we, we had some heat waves that were pretty, pretty bad, but kind of standard procedure. Heat waves in this part of the country are normal. That They're supposed to happen. We actually haven't had very many over the last nine years. Surprisingly few, even though some of those warmer summers have been warmer than average, not true heat waves, at least especially in northwest Arkansas. That being said, this is going to become a historical heat wave. It's not there yet because we're, we're still, believe it or not, at the early stages of this thing. But you go back to 2012. 2012 was exceedingly hot, right on the heels of 2011. 2011 was really a, an almost, more I would say, more than likely a generational heat wave uh, that we experienced the, the, the summer of 2011. We set records that you know, I, I was in Little Rock in 2011 at KARK, and it was it was pretty hot in Little Rock. It was much worse in Little Rock than it was uh, that summer than it was in northwest Arkansas, and about the same, actually, in Fort Smith. I never want to go back to that, I, I, and I thought I never would. I mean, I experiencing 114, 115, 116 degree temperatures, you know, this guy from Indiana, if it ever got to 100 degrees where I grew up, it was, it was front page news. I right. mean, it was a big deal. Less of a big deal around here, but we haven't, I mean, last summer, there have been a number of summers in the last several in in northwest Arkansas where we haven't seen, we haven't recorded a single 100 degree day at at Drake Field, which is not necessarily normal. It's normal to have terrible heat for, you know, several days, you know, four or five days. That's normal to go through those heat waves, maybe have a couple of them throughout the summer. But there are summers like 2011 that just blew all the records out of the water 2011, that summer, was right up there with anything we experienced during the Dust Bowl. That's saying something. Yeah. That's saying a lot. You know, the Dust Bowl lasted longer. It was from 1930 to 1936. Our, the two worst years for us were 1934 and 36. But in, in 2011, 2012 is, is really the only thing that's been comparable to the Dust Bowl since that point. Uh, 54 was pretty bad, but we're just at the beginning of it. So, so we can't say right now that this is, you know— 
historical or whatever, but I think by the end of it, by the time we get into August, we're going to be talking about summer of 2022 as an historical hot summer, not just in Northwest Arkansas and the River Valley, but across the South Central and even Central United States. You shared a photo from the Global Forecast System model last week that showed temperatures reaching 112 Northwest Arkansas River Valley and as high as 119 in the Tulsa area. And you said our models spit out ridiculously high temps in the 10 to 16 day time frame nearly every summer, but this is one that couldn't be ignored. Can you explain the difference between what might be the model expecting too high of a temp and what you saw in this one and why it shouldn't be ignored? Every summer. Every summer, when you look out in the in these, so the GFS, for for example, the global forecasting system, that that's a model that we use that we we consider in the United States as being one of the more important longer range models. It's one that we look at every day that that we strongly consider when we're putting together our forecasts. There's a lot of models we look at. That's definitely one of them that is is one of the more important ones. But every summer, I'll look at the, this model, the GFS. And I'll look out 10, 12, 13, 14 days, knowing full well that it may very well be nonsense. But I kind of look at it, and, and every year we'll see these crazy high numbers in that kind of 10 to 16-day time frame every summer, at least once, just about every summer anyway. But when I saw those numbers, that was within five days of when the model initiated. And the data that models are spitting out within five or six days is very different from the data that those models are spitting out 10 to 16 days. You don't take that you know 10 to 16 day time frame the specifics that the model is 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 a specific data the model is spinning out you don't take that very seriously the general pattern yeah okay you can get you can get gain some information from that but not the specific numbers but once you get within 5 or 6 days and you start seeing numbers like that i hadn't seen numbers like that within 5 or 6 days from that model i, I don't know it's been a while and given the pattern we're in it it makes sense that it was a possibility, not necessarily in the sense that I thought those exact numbers were going to occur. If you looked in the picture, I, I put in the picture. It says, I forget exactly what I said, but uh, more than likely, what, the, the 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 actual numbers are probably nonsense. But even if we're three to five degrees, three to four degrees right. cooler than what these numbers show, we're still in all-time record territory. The good news is. Now we're, now we're at this time, and we can see, yeah, it's going to be hot. Yeah, we're probably going to break records, but at least we're not going to be at all-time record high territory, which is 110 at Drake Field, just south of Fayetteville, and 115 in Fort Smith. Those are the all-time record high temperatures, both of which occurred in 2011, uh, although in, at Fayetteville we saw one other year where it got to not, uh, 110 back in 1954. But that's the good news. We're not going to get to what the model was showing, right. but we're not too far off either. And and we're in this pattern. It's, you, you get this hot in the summer. You only see the really bad heat waves during those summers in which it's been dry. If you've got a lot of moisture in the ground, if the vegetation has a lot of moisture in it, you're, you're just not usually going to heat up as much for a number of reasons. This year, it's been dry. It's been very dry. Now, some of us saw a little bit of rain, you know, uh, Sunday and Sunday night, which was wonderful. I didn't get any in my house. (laughs) Um, But there were some folks who did. And there's also some wind damage. I mean, Paris, my goodness, they're dealing with, in Logan County, um, still dealing, and and without power in this kind of heat. But many of us didn't get rain. It, It really wasn't enough to bust the current drought that's developing. But when it gets really dry, that's when you see those hottest numbers. And so the fact that at that time that I knew we were entering into a drought 
and the pattern lent itself to producing numbers not as high as what we saw on the GFS, but at least kind of in that territory, it, it, it worried me. It worried me for the, for the Tuesday, Wednesday time frame, but it really worried me because I knew, and I still know, that this heat is not going to go away in the near term, which means even though we're not going to get to all-time record high temperatures, you know, Tuesday and Wednesday more than likely, we could get there maybe later in the week or the following week because this pattern that we're in, I don't know when it's going to get broken up. But well, it won't be soon. And is it worrisome too that it's not just a single day spike and then and then a recession a little bit in the temperatures? But we're seeing not just really high temperatures, but consistently really high temperatures. You you had said on social media recently that we may break a you know a ten day record that was set all the way back in 1980 for the most consecutive hundred day temperature in Fayetteville, right? A- absolutely. And believe it or not, back in 2011, as, as hot as that summer was, we didn't break that. 10-day-in-a-row record because there was a, a front or a storm here. The summer as a whole was exceedingly hot, and I still don't know if we're going to get to be as hot as 2011 summer was, but because of the current pattern we're in right now, we could go 10 straight days with 100-degree-plus heat starting with Tuesday, and I've got 100-degree high temperatures in the seven-day forecast the next seven days. Now, that doesn't mean that Drake Field maybe one day gets lucky and only gets to 98 99 only 98 i know it, it, so it doesn't really matter i guess it's 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 a it's a record we don't want to break but at the same time if we're if it's going to be this hot we might as well break a record so we've got something to show for right. it is <laughs> one way to look at it anyway but yeah i mean that's part of the problem when it, it continues day after day after day and we could be seeing day after day after day of 100 degree heat even if it doesn't end up being 100 degrees every single day at Drake Field, somewhere in northwest Arkansas probably is, over the next 7 to 10 days. It just, when it doesn't let up, and it doesn't let up at night. So our Tuesday night and a Wednesday morning, people who work outside, people who just spend a lot, have to spend a lot of time outside, those are the people I worry about the most. If it's not cooling down even much at night into the early morning hours, a lot of these people are trying to get all their work done early in the morning if you work outside. Right. If it's already 90 degrees at, you know, 8 a.m., I mean, you, you can't get much work done. And then these same folks who've been working outside their entire lives, who've been working outside for years, who think that they you know, suffered through it all and, 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 and know how to deal with the heat, it can creep up on even them. You know? and, and heat is incredibly deadly. It is uh, one of the, if not the most deadliest uh, of hazards, weather hazards there is. Well, that leads really well into this idea that there's some experts that are suggesting that we should give heat waves names like we do tropical storms and hurricanes in an attempt to let people know it's something they should take more seriously. What do you think of the idea of naming heat waves? It's interesting. It, it, it is interesting. You know, I when I first heard about this, I immediately, you know, it's almost like, I don't know post-traumatic stress syndrome, because I was, I was thinking back to when the Weather Channel started to uh, name uh, winter storms yeah. and started to, and, and how silly, it was a marketing thing. It wasn't really for the benefit, it never felt like anyway, of their viewers. But this is different. You know, heat waves, you know, really do, they, they can kill a lot of people. They can be really, truly deadly. But then the other aspect of it is, as we talked about earlier, we don't see 
terrible heat waves necessarily every summer. We'll go an entire summer without, you know, a really significant heat wave, at least one that produces 100-degree heat day after day after day. Well, perhaps that's an argument for it. Yeah. Because it's so rare. Um, it's so rare. It's right. so infrequent that we don't necessarily take it as seriously right. because it doesn't happen as often. Right. But in a warming world, it's probably going to happen more frequently. I mean, yeah. just today, on a Tuesday, we saw the United Kingdom see its first temperatures above 102 degrees on record. And, you know, records in the UK go back pretty far. Right. You know, I mean, they go back to, I think, the 1600s, 1700s. I mean, they, they, it's not, you know, because they've been taking, measuring, measuring exactly, long. yeah. And so extraordinary, extraordinary heat over the UK on Tuesday. I, but heat waves more than likely will become more common. Now, it's interesting, in Arkansas, we, when you look at the entire United States, Arkansas is actually in this one little spot that has seen some of the least amount of overall warming over the last century. And <laughs> so we're, we're kind of in, I, I wouldn't say that we're necessarily shielded from the heat or from the warming because we're not. It, it's, it's still getting warmer here. You look at, you know, all the warmest, you know, summers, all the warmest winters over the last uh, 140 years, going back to the 1880s, the few sites that we have, that ha- we have data going back that far. Many of the warmest uh, summers and warmest winters were more recently in the last 20 or 30 years, and most of the coldest summers and coldest winters were a long time ago. And so you can see it in the data here, too. It's just that we haven't necessarily warmed as much in this part of the country as other parts of the country and other parts of the world have, and, and that's expected. We, not everyone's going to warm at the same rate, and the effects aren't going to be the same everywhere. But in general, we would expect more heat waves like this. And so it, it's an interesting idea as long as we can avoid making it a marketing ploy. I don't want, as long as it's not about marketing, as long as it's really about getting people's attention, then I'm all for it. But at the same time, I'm not sure what really gets people's attention more. Giving them the, you know, the actual forecast, it's going to be 107, you know, in the River Valley. I don't know if that, I think that's more impactful than calling a heat wave a name. <laughs> I don't know. Heat wave Harry. Yeah, heat wave Harry. You know, it's funny, it's cute, and people start laughing about it. No one's laughing at 107 degrees. And so the actual numbers, the actual forecasts will always, for me, mean so much more than naming a heat wave. But if it, if it brings more attention to that heat wave and can hopefully inevitably save more lives, then yeah, I'm all for it. But if we're really going to do this right, it has to come from NOAA. It has to come from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It can't come from state officials. It can't come from city officials. It can't come from your local TV meteorologist. It has to come from NOAA if we're going to do this right. And at this point, as far as I'm aware, they're actually not in favor of naming heat waves, at at least right now. I worry that I'm making things worse with climate change when I think of how I'm combating this insane heat. You know, when it's super hot outside like it has been, I'm just cranking up my AC more, which just burns more electricity, which just burns more fossil fuels, which just adds to our climate conditions. Do you worry about those sorts of things as well? I do. I mean, look, I recently I wanted to we've been talking about getting a new car and we want to get a truck. 
we want to get a truck because there's a bunch of stuff. We just know that there's so many uses for a truck. Yeah. We also maybe want to get a camper one of these days and just kind of want a truck for, for something like that. So I want an electric truck. And I've been seeing, you know, last several years I've been seeing the advertisements for an electric truck, the Lightning, Ford Lightning coming out. And, all the, and I thought, all right, well, let's go out and see if we can find one. Couldn't find one. Nobody has these electric trucks. The supply chain issues are having a huge impact on that industry. And so even if you want to get an electric vehicle, it's not easy necessarily to get them. Some electric vehicles are a little bit easier to get than others, but many of them are very, very expensive. You can only go a certain distance before you have to recharge. It's fine for day-to-day stuff, but if you really want to travel with it, it's going to be very, very difficult. There's a lot of challenges for you and I and anybody else who wants to live a life that's more sustainable and that, that lends itself to the kind of lifestyle we want everybody living to kind of help slow this, the, the amount of emissions and the amount of greenhouse gases we're releasing in the atmosphere. A lot of people want to live that lifestyle, but it, it's difficult, you know. In some cases, it's impossible. I think it's important that we all try to live that lifestyle the best that we can. The bottom line is, if we're going to make up real ground on slowing the amount of warming that we're seeing, in the world. If we're going to make up real ground on reducing the amount of emissions being put in the atmosphere or even taking some of that those greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere, it's not up to you and me. Yeah. I mean, we 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 want to do these things because if we're doing it in our own life, then we're going to be advocating for it and that it starts to spread and but the way that we get these problems solved is through our local legislators. It's through our our senators and our, our House representatives, and, and that's how you get and our governor and, and the people who make decisions on a national level. And so if you really, if that is important to you, and it should be important to all of us, we need to be voting in people who, who also care about these things. I'm not saying that all the other problems we face aren't just as important, because in my view, they are. But if we really want to have an effect on the Earth's atmosphere and, and slow down these emissions, we have to be voting in people who are like-minded and, and who, who also consider that to be important. You know, it is important, but we have to vote in the people who, who also agree that it's important. Darby Bybee, thank you so much for coming to KUAF. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Mercy Hospital Northwest will continue to expand with a $500 million investment. Mercy officials say the latest growth project is the second part of a bigger plan that began in 2016. The new phase includes a state-of-the-art cancer center, an addition of 100 primary care physicians and specialists, and expanded emergency department and more. KUAF is supported by Dr. Kathleen Wong, a psychiatrist providing infusion therapy for treatment of depression and anxiety disorders. Following NIMH protocol, infusion therapy is an effective alternative when other treatments fail. Dr. Kathleen Wong, WebMD, for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art is exploring the concept of democracy right now. That includes an original print of the United States Constitution, one of just 11 known to exist. We the People, the Radical Notion of Democracy, also uses art, some of it new to the museum collection, to consider the idea of governing and the relevance of the Constitution in 2022. That exhibit lasts until January 2nd. Saturday, the Museum of Native American History in Bentonville will host Dr. Rebecca Webster, an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota Duluth. She'll discuss the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, 
and how the centuries-old indigenous body helped influence the U.S. Constitution. She says there is a direct connection. So it's pretty clear if you look at what's all um, the foundation of the United States and that form of government, there are so many similarities. And even in the historical record, it's pretty clear that the founding fathers met and had a lot of conversations with Haudenosaunee people and other tribes um, that they came in contact with to learn and understand about their ways of governing and were quite impressed with it and wrote about how they were impressed with those forms of government. What are a couple of the similarities? Predominantly that it's a system that's federal in nature where the individual tribes handled their own affairs internally, but they came together as a larger group for overarching government issues that address the Confederacy wide, like, like the concerns that influenced the whole Confederacy, they came to discuss issues kind of like on a national scope. Um, another one that's pretty primary is the separation of powers, where like for the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the roles of nations and clans, they didn't try to assume each other's roles. There wasn't any trying to um, do what your role is and also recognizing that we all have a role to play and we're not going to overstep. Um, the way that the Haudenosaunee people had um, looked to their clan mothers and to their chiefs to talk about all of these issues before the meetings ever happened. And then they had input on that decision-making process. And especially for our um, chiefs, if they didn't carry the message that the clan mothers had delivered to them, and they continue to not deliver those messages or decide in ways that the community had wanted to decide, they removed their title. So that's kind of like if you don't like the way somebody is doing things, you don't elect them again. Um, also, their individuals could only hold one position in government. You can't be holding all kinds of different positions. And then there's just other things like there's a specific removal process for leaders. There's specific procedures for enacting laws and procedures for declaring war that are all very clear and outlined. I am not a historian, and it's always dangerous to project, but I'm thinking of these, you know, who we call the Founding Fathers, who are European in background, are coming from, you know, a lot of monarchies or forms of, of monarchy. And I can imagine the admiration they would have seeing, and, and the desire to learn more, because there were some relatively new concepts to these founding fathers, I would imagine, in this confederacy. Yeah, so the way we made decisions and passed it around through the different bodies actually looks a whole lot like the three branches of government, um, whether you're looking at internally within a tribe or uh, on the confederacy-wide, that decision-making process and how we send things back and forth, you know, the House and the Senate, and then send things back to the president that mirrors what happens in the Confederacy with the five different original tribes. Now, I don't want to disparage anyone who taught me American history in high school or college, because maybe I wasn't always paying attention. But until I got the release about your presentation, I don't think I was aware of this. Yeah, so it's a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of this. And there was a push, I think, in the, the late 80s to talk about the for, uh, foundation of the United States being based on the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, or you know, more common term is the Iroquois Confederacy. So, um, but there was a uh, congressional concurrent resolutions that were passed that formally acknowledged the contributions of the Haudenosaunee people to the formation of the United States form of government. 
And um, there's every now and then you'll see high school or even middle school curriculum that will talk about these things. They touch on them, but I think at least that's a good start to get people to be more aware of what our roots of the United States democracy really comes from. Was there anything in this that the Confederacy, you know, put into place that didn't make it into our Constitution? Oh, oh, really? I think the best parts have been left out. Primarily women. Women were always included. And everyone else, too, was included from the youngest child to the oldest adult. So if you look at the U.S. government, only white landowning men had a voice. Um, Also, food and community gathering was essential to our, not only our culture um, and our religion and, and our way of life, but also to our government. So you really, if you look at the the formation of the Confederacy, there's um, a story that we tell about how the Confederacy came to be, which is um, many generations before contact. And one of the protocols that was set forth in that was the peacemaker came through to all of these uh, villages and the tribes to pull all of these people together under um, one understanding of how we should treat each other. But one of the protocols is that he would come to a community and he would say, now, before I share my message with you, I want the men to go and hunt. I want the women to go into the fields and harvest and then the women to cook all of the food and then all of us to share in a meal together and then I'll share my message. So that's really talking about how important it is, how community is important and discussing things is important and sharing our daily lives with each other because we... Uh, seem to be so disconnected when we think about politics. And it's just easy to say something and not really be concerned with the ramifications of that. The same thing with decision-making. We didn't come into a meeting or you know how like our our elected officials come into a meeting with their mind made up already. They came to a meeting to discuss it and come to a solution that would work well for everybody. That just doesn't happen anymore. It's just a simple majority vote. And whoever's got the votes, that's how it's going to be. And if you don't like it, too bad. So that was never a way of our our governing structure. Um, We had hereditary chiefs and clan mothers, and they were separated out into families. And it's not necessarily, you know, like hereditary, like the firstborn son or something like that. It's just meant to be within families to make sure that the voices were distributed throughout the community to make sure that no one family held all of the power in, in a particular tribe. Um, we also had delegation of speakers um, after coming to one mind. So within a group, when we talked about something, we would delegate somebody to speak on behalf of the group, not just if, if you look at any of the videos or watch anything about what happens in our elected form of government, people are just standing up and saying stuff, you know, just whatever they feel like saying, and it doesn't really speak for other people. It's just what they think and how they have been voted in and they have a voice. And in here, it's the voice of what the people have decided, not necessarily what one individual thinks. I love the idea of saying, let's first sit down, let's have meal, let's have community, and then we'll talk. I know it's impossible, but I would love, I would love for it to be mandatory that someone has to have a meal with someone before they tweet at them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Because yes. it's so easy to just spew out bile at somebody through social media. Yes. Um, how, okay, so obviously 
the people who framed the United States Constitution are thinking about it in the mid-18th century. How far back do we know the, the Confederacy goes with their ideas for how to govern? So it, I think there's, um, there's an event that happened within the formation of the Confederacy, that story is talking about an eclipse. So they could date that back. So they think it's around the 1100s is when that government was formed. If you tie that back into looking at astrology and such. Becky, I'm wondering, when did you first, how old were you when you first knew about this? Um, well, I, and that's a whole nother story. But <laughs> So I grew up here in Oneida in, in my community. Um, but that was, it was during a time when not everyone was talking about these things. There were a handful of people that were. Um, and just because I grew up here doesn't necessarily mean I had access to those people and that information, but I did get a lot of that from books. Um, so and another thing to consider is the United people. We are originally from New York. We were removed to Wisconsin in the early 1800s. So we were kind of separated from our other Haudenosaunee relatives who were out in New York. So we, we were kind of isolated here. So it wasn't probably until college and after college when I came back home that we were really started to talk about this and to dive into it and have these deep conversations about what our government and what our culture and our history and our language and all of that. Um, it wasn't until then that I was able to do that. But it's also great because I have two teenage daughters, my husband and I, and now these types of things, these discussions, they're normal for them. So it's really great to be able to see more people talking about this stuff because it's not something that they're going to have to go back and learn as an adult. It's important, obviously, for your teenage daughters to know this, for Oneida to know this, but it's just as important, I would think, for those of us who are not uh, Native Americans or Indigenous or Oneida to know this. Well, we, I am working with um, one of our chiefs, who lives here in Oneida, uh, Bob Brown, and also a colleague of mine who's also Oneida and a professor, Tony House. So the three of us have been working for, I think, a couple of years now, and we are working on a book and possibly other projects that talk about the formation of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and its impacts even today. So hopefully that will come out within the next few years so other people will be able to also have access to this information. Dr. Rebecca Webster is an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota Duluth, and she'll discuss the Haudenosaunee Confederacy Saturday morning at 11 at the Museum of Native American History in Bentonville. For more information, mona.us. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents We the People, the Radical Notion of Democracy, featuring the nation's founding documents in conversation with American art, including a rare original print of the U.S. Constitution. Free tickets available at crystalbridges.org. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kelms. With me inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio is Ryan Versi. Ryan, how are you? I am great, Kyle. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great myself. We're going to make someone else feel great here in a minute because we're going to give away some tickets to the Josh Groban Preservation Hall Jazz Band concert at the Amp Friday night. But first, I want people to get to know you. You've been here three weeks? About three weeks now, yeah. You're our new underwriting director. That's correct. What should we know about Ryan? Well, um, where do I start, honestly? <laughs> I've been here in Northwest Arkansas for about eight years. Um, I'm a graduate of the Prairie View A&M University. 
right outside of Houston, Texas, class of 2011. Um, my previous role, I worked in the Walton College of Business and did a brief stint with the College of Engineering. Um, I've also got a little bit of radio experience with KDIV 98.7 here in Fayetteville, where I am the content director, manager, literally, I wear several hats there. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely happy to, oh, wait, let me go back. Most people know me as a photographer. So photography, graphic design, videography. A lot of people won't recognize me if I don't have a camera in my hand. Like, oh, I didn't, I didn't see you without your glasses. That's, I got it. That's me with the camera. Uh, you have a, a, a delightful wife and young, young child. Very young, yes. My daughter is going to be three months at the end of this week. Wow. Yeah. Um, my wife, Tara, she is the uh, community experience direct, director of community experience at Theater Square. So um, we both have a fairly similar role. Yeah. And um, it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, they say if your spouse works in a nonprofit, you also work in a nonprofit. So it's a great team over there. I have an equally great team here. I'm going to go ahead and say a little bit greater. But, you know, <laughs> don't tell them. <laughs> we'll never tell them. Uh, I have to ask the bands that you, on your wrist, are those Prairie View A&M colors? Yes and no. Okay. Um, they were actually, it's actually a little bit of a coincidence. So the yellow one, you remember back in, what was that, 2005 maybe? Um, Lance Armstrong had the Live Strong bands. Yes. So a friend of mine in college had one on her wrist, and I thought that's what it was. You know, I kind of was like, hey, let me, can I wear that for a while? She was like, yeah, sure. It actually says Live Christ. Mm. Right. So that was pretty cool. Um, I borrowed it from her, and here we are, what, 12, 13 years later? <laughs> right. Um, I like it, so I never take it off. And then the other one says Respect, and this is from a pack of three back in like 2006 when Nike released their um, Baller ID bands. So it's kind of like two things I live by. It's kind of like my tattoos. The gold is indeed a Prairie View color, but the black is just my favorite color. I like black. And then also a lot of people think this these are for my fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha mm -hmm. Fraternity Incorporated. They just happen to match. There you so go. So literally the only time I've taken these off in the last maybe 13 years now oh, wow. is during my intake process. Because, you know, we're not supposed to wear certain colors while, right. you know, joining an organization. Right. So, uh, don't want to say too much there. Um, also, before we get to the ticket giveaway, got to ask about sneakers. Because you've worn some wonderful <laughs> pairs of sneakers in your first three weeks here. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So, I have grown to be quite a sneakerhead. Um, it all started while I was in college. I worked at a sneaker store. Well, actually, just after college. Um, you know, that awkward phase between graduating and starting your actual career. I um, know that one, yeah. There was a couple of sneaker stores where I worked. One was in um, Cypress, Texas, um, right after I, you know, graduated. Um, I did a brief stint in Shreveport, Louisiana, a.k.a. moved home with my parents for a bit, and got a job at Hibbit Sports. So from there, that's kind of where I kind of got into it, you know, seeing the excitement when people would show up to the store trying to get the latest release. And I was like, oh, so this is really a thing. Um, from there, it kind of just spiraled for me because right. I had never really been in this. Thing. I always had cool shoes, but I just never really been into it like that. Up until I got here, you know, got a real career, had a real paycheck. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to treat myself to a pair of shoes. And I always try to find deals. I always try not to pay like the full resale value or the full retail price. Um, actually the retail price is usually a lot lower nowadays. So I always try to find the best deals I can. Um, my wife surprisingly is very supportive, you know, um, <laughs> fortunately we each have a walk-in closet in our bedroom. 
so it doesn't really bother her. And I also try to buy her a lot of my sneakers too. She hardly ever wears them, but she has quite a collection herself. Um, and in case anybody's wondering, I have over a hundred pairs of shoes wow. total. Wow. And I just gave away quite a few, like, and it's still over a hundred. Wow. And that includes like dress shoes, casual shoes, um, you know, sandals, slides, things like that. So yeah. I'm guessing you're not an eight and a half. Unfortunately, no. Okay. Well, nah. Um, I've been in the 13 since I was 12. Yeah, okay. Oh, wow. There yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are delighted to have you as part of our slightly better than Theater Squared team here. I'm even and more delighted to be here. <laughs> so now let's make someone happy oh, yeah. and give away Josh Groban tickets. So someone whose name I'll read here shortly is in for a great time. Um, we had several entrants. Is that the word? In people? Entries. Entries. Let's go with entries. Sure. Because I was thinking applicants, but they didn't apply. They entered. Yeah. But then entrant, I don't think is a word. It is now because we coined it there right There you here. go. So let's go From with now on, we're going to talk about the entrance. The yes. entrance, yes. yes. So, um, and the winner for this, is it this weekend? It's Friday night. Friday night. Friday night. Sarah E. Doyle is going to have a great time. Sarah E. Doyle of Springdale. All right. Yes. Um, one of our many entrants. <laughs> she is the winner. And we're going to get in touch with her, tell her how to pick up those tickets to Josh Groban. Absolutely. And we'll give away more tickets later. We definitely got a lot more coming up. So, right. Ryan, thanks so much. Kyle, thank you. Have you ever felt it could all go away if you bleed? If you never stop running, you won't fall behind. So you think. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kelms. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio is a voice you've been hearing this summer on Ozarks at Large. Kristen Kite. Kristen, welcome. Hello. Thank you, Kyle. Uh, one of the recent interviews you conducted was with someone who's been kind of looking into animals, right? Yes, I interviewed Erica Westerman. She was the assistant professor for the Department of Biological Sciences at the U of A. And, and what did you talk to her about? Well, I talked to her kind of about how animals see different colors and maybe how land animals differ from aquatic animals. And so what was the conversation about with Erica? I talked to Erica about what she studied and what she learned. So one of the big questions in biology is understanding the incredible diversity of patterning and color that we see. And as biologists have been exploring this question for quite some time, one of the things that they've realized is that animals and non-animals, so and plants and single-celled organisms, communicate with each other in a wide variety of ways. Since many organisms use visual signals to communicate, the question becomes, why don't all the organisms that use visual signals to communicate use the same colors of visual signals to communicate? Well, one hypothesis is that the environment that we're in influences the colors we can see. So just like in terms of auditory communication, the 
acoustic properties of the mic that we're using influences how close I need to be to the mic for me to be understandable. And the quality of the signal that KUAF sends out into the universe influence it, and the receivers that are in people's devices, whether it's their radio, their car, their cell phone, influences how easy that signal is detected. The light environment might influence what wavelengths of light or what colors are easy for animals to see. So the idea is that animals that live in different environments might have different visual abilities based on the light that's in that environment. And that is what we call visual tuning. So our question was to see if animals, when we look across all the different taxa of life, so all different types of animals, do all, when we look at all that diversity, are there some general rules about how the light environment influences what animals can see? Kind of curious at the same time that I was like, can these plants see me when I let them die because I didn't properly take care of these plants? <laughs> No, it's not so much that the plants can see us. It's that we can see the plants, and plants, many plants, are trying to attract pollinators. What I thought was interesting about your conversation that you had with Eric Westerman was it wasn't just about what she found. You also asked her some things about how she did it. I asked her exactly how they did the research and how they got things started. So this builds upon the hard work of many scientists over many different years. And we found those studies that had measurements of what the animals could see. And we took that information for, for 446 different species of animals across four different phyla of life, so vertebrates, and then a number of different invertebrates, so looking within the arthropods, so that's your insects and crustaceans primarily, as well as in mollusks, so relatives of snails, and we actually had some cnidarians, so jellyfish. And we took that vision data and then combined it with an in-depth search on habitat so that we could categorize the different species and for different habitats to answer the question of whether environment influences what animals can see and can, we can predict what animals can see based on their environment and whether there's an effect of evolutionary history. The animals that were sampled were reared in natural environments. I also asked Erico why we couldn't just take a household pet compared to a wild animal. We were looking at, say, house cats, and we compared the visual sensitivity of a house cat who'd spent their entire life in a home versus the visual sensitivity of a feral cat. We might expect to see some differences. This is incredibly interesting, but you also asked her just some <laughs> like what those of us who aren't scientists would ask, right? I asked her how she was realizing that they were seeing any more colors. I mean, it's not like animals can talk. They either stuck an electrode in the eye of the butterfly. Well, not just, not just butterflies, but the, the eye of the animal to get electrical recordings from the photosensitive pigments in the eyes and see 
what wavelengths of light most excite? Is it responding to you ultraviolet light? Nope, no response to ultraviolet light. How about green? Ooh, a little bit of response there. How about red? Wow, we get a big response to red. And then you go, how about infrared? Oh, not as much of a response there. And so you get a curve that tells you what the maximum sensitivity is for that type of a cell. So then I asked her about her butterfly earrings that she had on, and she let me know kind of why she wore those butterfly earrings. I'm wearing butterfly earrings because one of the main groups that we work with in my lab for experimental work are butterflies. And butterflies are exceptional pollinators. And uh, they're also incredibly diverse in their wing patterns and in what they can see, so their visual ability. So they're kind of a good example organism to think about when we're looking at types of animals that could be influenced by their light environment. So take a yellow tiger swallowtail butterfly. That butterfly, which is yellow, is going to be easier to see on a purple cone flower than it is going to be to see on a yellow daisy. Another example is looking at ambient light. So for example, if you're under a tree or you're in a shady environment, the leaves of the trees are pulling the long wavelengths of light out of that environment. So in a shady environment, there's more greens, blues, and ultraviolet wavelengths of light than there are reds and yellows and infrared wavelengths of light. So if we go back to those butterflies, a lot of species of butterflies use ultraviolet light as a way to communicate and find mates. And for the species that do that, they're more likely to do their courting displays in a shady environment. Chris and Kai, who, who again were you talking with? I spoke to Erica Westerman. She works at the University of Arkansas as assistant professor for the Department of Biological Sciences. And next, the next thing we're going to hear from you is about an entrepreneur from Rogers, right? You are going to hear that. And what does he make? He makes rope. It's more interesting than it sounds, I promise. It's a cool story. All right, and that's coming up soon on Ozarks Lodge. Kristen Kite, so happy that you're with us this summer. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Support for KUAF comes from Westwood Gardens, featuring locally grown plants offering a variety of roses, trees, shrubs, and more, selected to perform well in Arkansas's summer heat. Westwoodgardens.com for more information. It's almost time for KUAF's The Lunch Hour again. Our monthly intimate live concerts in the KUAF lobby continue Friday with music from Pura Coco and food delivery by Mo Tacos and Churros. If you haven't made it to a lunch hour session yet, it's a pretty chill affair. Great free live music and free food made right here in northwest Arkansas. You can register to attend Friday at noon by going to Eventbrite and looking for the lunch hour. And to give you a gentle nudge to drop by the Carver Center for Public Radio Friday, here's a sample of our last lunch hour with the band Honey Collective. Hi, everybody. Thank you. 
That was called Wish You Were Mine. It's a little bit different every time we play it. It's the fun of it. Honey Collective performing I Wish You Were Mine in the KUAF lobby last month. The next KUAF lunch hour is Friday at noon, again here at the Carver Center for Public Radio. We'll have music by Pura Coco and food from Mo Tacos and Churros. You can register at eventbrite.com. Just search for the lunch hour. Hi, I'm Aisha Roscoe from NPR's Weekend Edition. The voices, the stories, the lives of your friends, your neighbors, as well as those you don't know, can be heard on KUAF Public Radio every day. And your voice matters too. We want to hear from you using KUAF Connect. Just get the KUAF app for iPhone, click the Connect button, and leave your message for the KUAF community. Or call 479-575-6577. At KUAF Public Radio, your voice matters. For more information, go to KUAF.com. This is KUAF 91.3, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Blue Eye. Contributors today included Kristen Kite. Timothy Dennis produced the Honey Collective sample we heard and the video that you can find of last month's lunch hour produced by Lens Audio on the downtown Fayetteville Square. Thanks to KUAF's underwriting director, Ryan Versi, for coming by the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to talk with Kyle. And a special 75th birthday to my beloved mother, Myra Moore. Happy Aww. birthday. Happy birthday. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Thanks for being here. Oh, Matthew, when you said uh, Blue Eye at just a moment ago, yes. did you mean Blue Eye, Arkansas, or Blue Eye, Missouri? Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Love to throw those. Truth is, I write. That usually, yes. what's the fourth time we're going to mention? And I try to get one that you, as someone who hasn't lived here your entire life, doesn't know. And you nailed it. Yes. Well, you meant both because it's right there on the on the border. So it's kind of like Texarkana. Exactly. Okay. Very right. good to know. All right. Thanks for listening. Stay cool. Hydrate. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for listening.